Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. From Luminary, this is Here to Slay, the Black feminist podcast of your dreams. I'm Tressie McMillan-Cottom. And I am Roxanne Day. I'm here to slay. Tressie and I talk about what we've been reading, Mm -hmm. what we've been watching, what we've been thinking about, what we've been reading and watching. We are, by definition, cultural omnivores, Roxanne. Mm -hmm. We may have standards for lots of things. Our food, our homes, our travel, the people we will allow speak to us. But when it comes (laughs) to the things we'll read and talk about, we're not picky. We can move from Toni Morrison to talk about how white people are crazy, which sometimes actually are the same conversation. Uh, We don't actually really want to talk about why white people is crazy, but sometimes we just have to. We can't get away from it. Right? This is America. It's right there. It's just everywhere. (laughs) The crazy never stops. But we can choose who we're going to talk about all of this stuff with. And Mm -hmm. that's going to be women, mostly. Black women, usually. And always women who are getting shit done. Hey, girl. That's my Wonder hey. Woman with the bracelets. Pew, I pew, see the bracelets. I, I feel like our listeners can even hear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, girl. Hey. Oh, how are you feeling, my friend? Are you a little under the weather? I'm uh, just having some stomach distress. Oh. I, I had some greenery for lunch. <laughs> Which you, was my first mistake. You can't blame the greenery. The greenery is good. It's good <laughs> for you, the greenery. And what's weird is I actually eat salad every day. Yeah, you like salads. I'm the one you have to force them I'm into a big myself. Salad fan. Yeah. My wife is not, so uh-huh. I don't really get a chance to make a lot of salads for dinner. But here in New York, there's this amazing restaurant called Chopped. Mm-hmm. And it's ridiculous. It's overpriced nonsense. I feel but, like I've seen this floating around on Twitter yeah. before. Okay. And so you just get a bunch of different little ingredients and they chop it up and put it in a bowl with some dressing mm-hmm. and you're good to go. And anyway, long story short, how are you doing? I am hanging in there. I am, um, you know, I'm a little pissed at myself. I did a midday workout. Mm. And honestly, the only reason why I'm doing is because I try to close the rings on my silly Apple watch. I'm a toddler. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm basically playing a game with myself and I know the rules. I know the psychology of these mm-hmm. things and it should not work on me. But if I don't close my rings at night, I don't sleep well. You got the something. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yes. I don't know what the I got The exercise-itis. No, I do not because I actually hate it the entire time I'm doing it. I'm never going to love it. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I do like is I like achieving things. Yes. And so I want my little badge on my watch. So I'm all right. So what I hear you saying is that you are the target demographic. No. See, first of all, you're trying to say I'm basic, <laughs> which I will concede <laughs> might be true. But how dare <laughs> these Apple people <laughs> double down on it? How dare they? It's racist. I just haven't figured out how. But you give me some time and I'm going to work out a way that this whole thing is racist against me personally. Okay. I think so. I think that's totally fair and reasonable. Yeah. You know, I get in trouble sometimes when I say things like that because, you know, white people are very sensitive to the fact that they think we make everything about race. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I do it on purpose. I'm always telling white people, oh, if you give me a few minutes, I can figure out how that's racist. <laughs> 
I love it. I love it. Just give them consternation constantly. Like, yes, that shit is racist. Speaking well, yeah, I mean, if people aren't going to take it seriously, uh, and which people are not, um, mm-hmm. you know, despite what? We've got a, a year and a half here where everybody was going to do the reading and do the work, right, and do the thing. And we've talked about this before. I'm, you know, I can't live in race 101. Mm-hmm. I'm just beyond that. And I refuse to go backwards and sort of dumb it down for people because mm-hmm. of where they are in their journey. So, you know, the only thing left for someone like me is I, I just get a little trolly about it. I troll people. You know, it, it's been an interesting year to watch people giving lip service to mm-hmm. race and thinking through what a racism-free world could look like. Yeah. What, you know, reparations for history mm-hmm. could look like. And we're not anywhere near where we should be if people had actually done the reading. Right. You know, I think a lot of people think that buying the book is doing the reading. Those things are not synonymous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And not only do you have to do the reading, you have to truly sit with what you read. Right. And I have no problem with this person. I've never met them. I've never read their book. But, you know, if all you're reading is white fragility, mm-hmm. then... You're in trouble because you need to be reading some 201, 301, Mm -hmm. and 401, and then some 601. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. And so let's talk about the big one, the White Fragility book. Uh, Because uh, as a professional... I've read excerpts, (laughs) just not the whole book. As a professional person who, you know, does race and racism in my day job, I'm supposed to have an opinion on this. Mm -hmm. And I get asked it a lot, and I usually won't say in uh, media, because here's my line, right? And this is how I determine the things that I'll speak about. I know people think that we just like go off the handle and all that. Right. But like, I'm a very thoughtful person, actually. I just maybe think a little faster than some people do. And so they don't, they miss some of the twists and turns. But I'm very thoughtful about what I will say. I know that for whatever reason, people listen to me about certain things. And so I don't go around just trashing people's work. My standard is work is allowed to be incomplete It is allowed to be bad. Mm -hmm. It is allowed to be a hot mess. But that doesn't mean Mm -hmm. the work is a problem. You see, I think that people, especially when, you know, the barrier to entry is now so low to publishing, when academics, frankly, have to publish just to keep our jobs. I'm also very sensitive to that. Mm -hmm. Every book that comes out, I don't hold it up to the standard of, you know, everybody's not going to be James Baldwin or Du Bois or whatever. Right. And so I will usually only comment on something if I think the idea is becoming dangerous. And for most of its lifespan, she made a shit ton of money, Robin D'Angelo, with White Fragility. And a lot of my colleagues were, I'll be honest with you, a little envious. They're a little mm-hmm. envious. She turned it yeah. into an industry, right? She got people to pay her to come in and do diversity and inclusion workshops. And by all accounts, has made a ton. I read an article about what she's made and I just thought... Oh, girl. Oh, it's big money. If you are willing to be that person mm-hmm. who will go into an organization and talk to them about race without making them feel bad, because that's the job. Mm-hmm. Let's be real. That's the job. Um, if you're willing to do that, You will never go hungry. I'll tell you that much. No, you won't. And, you know, the thing is, I think a lot about this book because people have been talking about it so much. And I've read a couple excerpts. I don't need to read the whole book because that book is not for me. Yeah. Yeah. And And I will give her credit. She says that. This is not, she says, for minority readers. She does target who her book is for. And I've long believed and I've seen it in action that white people tend to believe other white people about Mm -hmm. racism before they believe black people. Right. So she's actually attending to a ministry that is not mine. And so I don't, 
begrudge the existence of the work. I just know that it's in, like you said, it's incomplete. And mm-hmm. so one of the things that we have to do as readers and as thinkers and as human beings is to recognize that everything is incomplete. There's nothing wrong with that, but it is our job to fill in the blanks. Right. And so you can't read just one book. You need to also go read The Fire next time. Okay. And so here is the thing then for me about the one book phenomenon. People want this big, complex thing, race and racism, which is an ongoing conversation. It's a historical conversation. It's complicated. It's contextual. It's situational, right? The conversation we'll have about race and racism in the United States, for example, is very different from a conversation you need to have if you're standing in the middle of Brazil or the middle of London, right? Or the middle of Shanghai. So like wanting like one book, 300 pages of very big type, <laughs> that's shade, um, <laughs> that's going to explain everything to you is it is fundamentally not doing the work. It's, it's, it is saying that you can't pick this thing up and put it down um, when it is convenient for you. So I don't have a problem with the white fragility industry per se. And Robin D'Angelo is not the first one, whether you love her or hate her, but the classic, um, the white woman who go who in the 70s would go into the schools and do the blue-eyed, brown-eyed experiment. Oh, yeah, yeah, the blue-eyed, brown-eyed. Jane Elliott. Bless her heart, though. Bless her little heart. Is the woman who uh, <laughs> sort of, in her way, pioneered the sort of anti-racism curriculum uh, for white people. Um, so, you know, the Robin D'Angelo shtick is not new, uh, you know, and I don't want to sort of like isolate her in in do any unfair criticism. There are books, however, and ideas that get picked up that are dangerous. And here's what I want readers and like the general population to get to, certainly the kind of people who listen to us and listen to our show. If you're going to be the person in the room who has done the work, I feel like you got to be prepared to identify the work that is dangerous from the from the work that is just merely bad. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, and that takes reading. That takes a little bit more sophistication, which is all we're talking about. It really is. And we need that sophistication now more than ever just to process so much of what's happening. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of Baltimore mm-hmm. and the district attorney deciding to no longer prosecute small crimes. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of the Derek Chauvin trial in Minneapolis, mm-hmm. uh, where we have, for the very first time, seen the police actually distance themselves and say, oh, I don't know him. Sorry mm-hmm. to this man. Which really, I mean, uh, absolute credit that is to the young people who've been in the streets. It shows yes. that the police departments are a little bit afraid, frankly. They are. Yeah. They are. And, you know, I think for once we have a crime that was so incontrovertibly horrific. I mean, they all are. Mm-hmm. But this time, like, there was, he was looking, he was told to stop and he, like, was like, no, I'm going to keep doing me mm-hmm. uh, and then pretend he's afraid. Sir, how are you afraid of an unarmed man who you are pinning down? You know, and so not only can books help us to recognize, you know, what has happened in the aftermath mm-hmm. and to recognize why so many people are surprised that the police are distancing themselves from this guy, because in general, the blue line holds. Yep. And fortunately, when we have people who are elevating the conversation around race, we mm-hmm. have better tools to contextualize and make sense of what's going on. And that's all we're saying, that you can't wait for a single book. You shouldn't even mm-hmm. wait for a single author or thinker to help you guide yourself through 
complicated ideas. It's fine to start there, but you can't end there. So in the season of like the big books that have come out to try to reshape how we think about things, you know, you've got Ibram Kende, which listen, I also got my thoughts. Um, I feel like we should have y'all pay extra for I these. I think we though. should have a very special secret episode <laughs> about so that too. one. I have so many thoughts, so many, but I'm not gonna, you know, like, again, like, I respect everyone's hustle. Right. We each have a little hustle. That's correct. And so far be it from me Uh 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 to tell uh you that you should not have your hustle. Right, right. But at the same time, let's acknowledge that the hustle is there. A hustle? I feel like this is where we should play the hustle, the song, y'all. Okay, so yeah, listen, this is what I mean. Like, I'm always trying to decide, is that a dangerous idea Kende has, or is it just a half-baked one? And I do that assessment of everything. We've got, uh, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates's, I would say, over, over, over. Thank you. That I can't really say that word either. Yeah, it's hard. It's like oeuvres, which is also the French for eggs, and that that's why I'm getting them mixed up. Anyway, mm-hmm. so we've got Tanahisi Coates's archive. There you go, and some body of work, and uh, I think that many people have turned to. We had the 1619 project. It's another one of mm-hmm. these sort of like big idea movements, um, and then we've got a recent book by Isabel Wilkerson, Cast. The Origins of Our Discontents, I think is, you know, a recent entry into this kind of conversation of trying to be an ambitious, big discussion, big idea book that doesn't just want to educate you about like race 101. But I think Wilkerson is in the tradition of people who are trying to actually reframe the conversation, give you new tools to think about it with, um, introduce you to new concepts, yes, but also to weave the concepts together in a new, maybe to the general reader, new to you way of thinking about them. Uh, Isabel's approach is um, to draw on the idea of inheritance and inherited caste system. And listen, the book is not perfect, just like uh, I think any of the big idea books are, but it does introduce some language to people that might move us beyond, you know, good, bad, racist, anti-racist, that there might be more shades of nuance and distinction. Absolutely. You know, and you touch on something I think that's so important. It's not a perfect book, but I actually don't think perfect books, A, exist. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's the goal. And Mm -hmm. what I like about her book is that she wrote a book that white people get to write all the time. Mm -hmm. Big idea, swing for the... It's the, the I don't know baseball. I think we're Thank supposed you. to swing for the. I was like, I don't know where the metaphor is. Know, swing for the far away place. And that's one of the few sports ones I know. <laughs> swing for the fences, and so I found I loved the book. I found it to be very interesting and provocative, and uh, there are some omissions which we do discuss with her. I've read the critiques of the book, which I also thought were intelligent, and I love that the book got serious engagement. Mm-hmm. Because not all books about race get serious engagement. I mean, actually, very few of them do. Correct. Most of them get a pass because mm-hmm. people don't have the language to speak about them. Yeah, like the thing is, I don't think that we want a pass at all. What we want is credible engagement. I, I think that it bodes well, 
for at least black intellectual culture Mm -hmm. when we are willing to engage with one another's work honestly. And we are all better off when that is the level of the discourse that we can have. And so as much as the book has entered into the conversation, the conversation about the book has really leveled up the discourse. Uh, And that is something I think to be celebrated. It moves, absolutely moves beyond the 101 anti-racism reading list from last summer. It says (laughs) that people are sick to death of training wills. Let's get more sophisticated. Let's get more nuanced. We can handle it. And that's what they've shown us. And so joining us here today is the author of that book. Isabel Wilkerson is the first African-American woman to win a Pulitzer Prize in journalism. She was awarded the National Humanities Medal in 2016 by then-President Barack Obama for championing the stories of an unsung history. Her 2010 book, The Warmth of Other Suns, about the Great Migration, was named the New York Times Magazine's best nonfiction of all time, Mm -hmm. and to Time's 10 best nonfiction books of the decade. Her latest book, Cast, focuses on the American hierarchy and looks well beyond the confines of race, class, or gender. First of all, I'm just fascinated in how did you sell white people on this book? (laughs) Because that to me, it just seemed like it would go against the very impulse of the kinds of books people want to hear about this nation. Well, uh, I think that part of it had to do with what we've been through in the last few years. I mean, you know, this is a, right. I mean, one of the, the main audiences for this book were the people who, you know, we've all heard the people say, you know, this is not my country. I don't recognize my right. country. This is not what America stands for. Well, actually, it has been the country for lo- far longer than it has not been the country. And it mm-hmm. was for them. I think that there was more of an awareness, I'd say more of an openness to looking at almost anything that could help explain mm-hmm. what otherwise did not make sense for so many people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I thought a lot about the different examples that you use to build this argument about caste and how we can find a lot of the origins of American racism and what happened with the Third Reich, and we can see it in the Indian caste system. But I kept thinking about South Africa yeah, and mm-hmm. apartheid. Mm-hmm. And so part of it, I'm going to qualify by saying, when you write a book like this, everyone is going to give you 20,000 things that you should have or could have included, <laughs> and you cannot be everything to everyone. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, when I think about apartheid, it's such a significant example. Why was it not, you think, the best fit for your argument? That is a great question. I really appreciate your asking that. Uh, I, I did think about it. I mean, actually, you know, when I was at the New York Times, I actually covered South Africa for a short time. So I'm I'm familiar with I didn't it. Know that. Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar yeah. with it actually on a personal level. And I, I had experiences mm-hmm. that I could have actually incorporated it if I'd wanted to. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think that as writers, you know, the three of us are writers and this is narrative nonfiction. So the goal is to bring the audience in. Mm-hmm. The goal is to make it such that, you know, you, it, you invite the reader to want to turn the page. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't want to overload it. Mm -hmm. So that's part of it. But then another part of it is because it's the most recognizable connection Mm -hmm. that many people would make, uh, I wanted to look at two places where race in and of itself was not the metric used to design those caste I systems. See. I see. So okay. that in that way, you can see, you know, other metrics that were used in these other societies 
so that you can then look and see beneath them and say, actually, those structures led to some of the same behaviors, the same impulse to manage those boundaries and police those boundaries and to enforce it in the same way. The whole, Even some of the actual mechanisms were similar. Yes. And so that was one thing. And then one other reason why is because, as it turns out, the United States predated South Africa in the creation mm-hmm. of its, mm-hmm. oh, of its racial yeah. jurisprudence. Yeah. So that means that actually they followed us. Apartheid was uh, made law well after uh, Jim mm-hmm. Crow was is in place in the United States. That's significant yeah. to me. So you've got a temporal problem that doesn't, right. I don't think, exist in our popular imagination of when, right. you know, history is also always just really weird to Americans. I don't think yeah. we tend to understand the sequence of events that make history. Yeah, exactly. um, we really struggle with that. And I, uh, and I got to admit, I mean, I knew that cause I know like some of the years, but I got to admit that when I don't think I've ever put them in my mind on a comparative timeline. Um, yeah. 1948. And, right. Is, yeah. Uh, yeah. Apartheid. Mm-hmm. I know. I think what happens to white readers, if they start to grapple with what caste means in the American system, of racism. I kept wondering, what does it mean for Black folks to read this argument, you think, Isabel? What are, you think, some takeaways for us, if any, from recentering or sort of shifting our understanding of the historical origins of the American racial hierarchy? I personally have found the concept of caste to explain a lot of what I have been through personally moving about this world, um, brushing up against the expectations for someone who looks like me from the group that I'm from, the, the caste to which I was born. And I feel that, you know, that we live this and we know it in our bones that our society, the country that, you know, our ancestors or people who look like us built still keeps us in a fixed place at the very bottom. Mm-hmm. The videos, you know, the, the kind of things that we see happening to Breonna Taylor and yeah. to George Floyd, uh, to Ahmaud Aubrey, so many names, you know, it's a metronome of names. We almost mm-hmm. are overcome by them. I also have to say, I think about someone, Jonathan Farrell. I, I cannot get yeah. his story Me out of too. my mind. I mean, Me I too. literally cannot. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. just think, okay, if we could just he say. He was lost. Oh, my God. He had had a massive car accident that yeah. just is, was so tragic in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And then he went to get how He managed to climb out of the back yep. window. of the car. And -hmm. then he goes to try to get help. Mm -hmm. And he goes to the first house that he comes across. And the woman calls the police. Mm -hmm. The police arrive who are supposed to help him or help any citizen in that situation. Mm -hmm. And what happens? He gets shot and killed to death. Executed. And that is solely because what he looks like, the metric of race, metric of phenotype, metric of what we look like, has been used by this hierarchy to determine who has which place in our society, whose lives are valued and whose are not, what can happen to an individual. And I feel as if when I look at that, I realize that we are living with it, whether we give it a name or not. Mm -hmm. We know in our bones that we have been so devalued, so dehumanized. We are ranked at the very bottom of our society. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I often say that, you know, when it comes to like class versus caste, if you can act your way out of it, it's class. If you cannot act your way out of it, it's caste. Mm -hmm. It is this Mm -hmm. fixed nature that there is nothing that an individual can do to escape these assumptions and stereotypes that literally put your life in danger. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
It dehumanizes mm-hmm. so that the natural human response to something that happens to an individual gets turned into something that literally can mean your life. Yeah, yeah. When I teach the concepts of race, class, and caste, you know, as I do as a sociologist, mm-hmm. and I've, so I've taught it several times over the years, the example that always stumps my cho- my children. I know. I love they're that. Adults. They are. I get it. I know. I get it. They're adults. Blah, blah, no, blah. No, I call okay. my babies. My students are my Thank babies. Thank you. Okay. I, it's not infantilizing. It's that to no. me, I'm there to take care of them. Okay. Exactly. So, and I'll say, to, this is the thing that stumps them because they're still you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. <laughs> and they know how to talk about the lower end of the spectrum, right? They're so trained on how to talk about yes. poverty. And yes, disproportionately African-Americans are poor. You know, they've got it. They've yeah. been trained. Where they get hung up is when we talk about the other end of the spectrum. And I'll say to them, how rich do you have to be to no longer be Black? And I ask them to bring me examples, right? Tell me the person who's wealthy enough because really, I already know, you know, there are only five, right? We've got five <laughs> black billionaires. <laughs> but even then. And each one they bring back, I have a news story. Mm-hmm. I have a news story. I have them all queued up and ready to go. Oprah can't buy a purse. Robert Johnson being pushed out of the elevator that time. I mean, Michael Jordan being mistaken. The most famous man in the world, right? Yeah. And we go through them one by one by one, and it just destroys them. Yeah. Their whole concept. And I think often about what would have happened if they understood limits in that way. If we talked about the top as much as we talked about like the bottom, right? Mm -hmm. What might be different for how we think about race and class and caste, yeah. Well, I I think that the natural and necessary focus on those who suffer the most as a result of our hierarchy um, is important and needs... Mm -hmm. There's there's not enough that can be spent on trying to understand and help people who are suffering the most in our society, as we can see with COVID. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. Yes. Yeah. But w- the reason why I, I think that looking at those who are brushing up against uh, the expectations of people in our society who are assigned as a group to the very bottom is that you can see the limits in the rest- It's almost like that contrast dye that is used when, you know, cardiologists try to see what's happening mm-hmm. with the arteries. And mm-hmm. then you can better see exactly what is happening because you have now factored out all the other things that could right, possibly right, yeah. be at work. And now right. all you are left with is that very thing that keeps a person at the bottom, no matter what, ever else they might do mm-hmm. or represent. And mm-hmm. and that's why I, I spent a lot of time in the, in the book actually talking about what happens when you brush up against uh, are in contention with the pre-existing roles that we have been assigned from the time of our arrival on this, on this soil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been yeah. thinking a lot about colonialism lately. I think because mm-hmm. everyone's been talking about the Royal family and yeah. mm-hmm. I think that one of the main things being left out of the conversation is that, of course, it, the Meghan Markle situation ended up this way. <laughs> I mean, they're colonizers. Yeah. That's what they do. Yeah. <laughs> Quite literally. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you have to wonder, is there a point where there's a remedy for all of this? And one of the proposed remedies that has been discussed for decades now is reparations. Do you yeah. think reparations is a path to dismantling the caste system? Is there anything that can dismantle the caste system? You know, it's it's one way to explain, for example, what happened in 2016. It's one way to understand yes. what happened, you yeah. know, to, 20, the response to 2008, 
Um, in other words, the the, the mm-hmm. biggest breach of the caste system occurred in 2008, you might say. And, and yeah, this is, and everybody went absolutely, nuts. Absolutely, and that's what this yeah. is. And, yeah. and now, of course, we yeah. saw people literally climbing the walls to get into the Capitol to reassert mm-hmm. the birthright that they perceived themselves to have mm-hmm. on January 6th with that insurrection. We saw them literally climbing the walls and breaking police yeah. barricades. And so I, I don't present myself as having all the answers. My goal was to present the x-ray of our country. My goal was, like I said, I, I'm like a building inspector who's coming back and saying, this is what we're mm-hmm. dealing with. You know, I, I actually don't even perceive myself as making an argument. Mm-hmm. I perceive myself as shining a light on what we otherwise cannot see. And you cannot fix what mm-hmm. you cannot see. But one of the things that I just think is, is central is us getting on the same page about the basics of what have happened in our country. Like we're not on the same page as a country oh, yeah. no. about how no. we got to where we are. Basic history. Mm-hmm. And it's dangerous to not know. Mm-hmm. You know, not knowing has consequences. I mean, not having an idea affects, you know, how you mm-hmm. vote, what policies you support, you know, you know where you send your children, uh, where you choose to live, whether you choose to give this person a mar- yeah. mortgage or to hire that person. It has consequences. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. whether we want to acknowledge it or not, these are the facts of our country. Mm-hmm. Well, I tell you, you know, the um, the very first act of whiteness, of course, is this eternal forgetfulness. Yes. Right. And this is why we I feel like we have to constantly reassert the conversation. People love to say that we always make things about race. And I go, well, no, you did it first. <laughs> we, we, we keep just having to show up to re- reintroduce. Um, you have mentioned your wonderful uh, book, The Warmth of Other Suns, uh, which I'd like to ask you about, because I think about once we think about The Warmth of Other Suns, which is this significant big idea book, which is you take a big moment um, in history that Black people knew intimately. Yeah. Frankly, you know, even if you didn't really know the language, like you knew that your grandparents had moved, mm-hmm. you know. So <laughs> the warmth of other sons is about the massive internal migration of African-Americans throughout their own country, basically in search of full franchise, full citizenship, and in just us roaming about this nation trying to find a place where we could be free. But you put it beside caste, which I think of as another major big idea book. And I started thinking, Isabel, when we were prepping for this show, I don't know too many Black women writers who do these big idea books at this scale um, like you do. I would love to talk a little about craft. Where does one start with getting your arms around an idea that has that many historical movements and that many actors and how do you decide which actors are the are moving along the narrative mm-hmm. and aren't a distraction from the argument? Where do you start with something that big? That is a good question. Sometimes you know, they say writing is a wonderful <laughs> thing to have done. <laughs> yes, that is right. So, so going back, but you know, with <laughs> with the with the wonder of the sons. I mean, I first started. I I wanted to hear from the people who had survived Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. Because the book, The Warmth of the Sons, is not solely about people migrating out. Uh, it's not even about geography. It, it really is about the tough decisions that people had to make in a situation where nobody should have had to even think about leaving, but they they did, and the world that they were trying to flee. So the first thing I did was I needed to you know talk with them. So I went to all those 
Uh, you know, you know, there actually are AARP meetings on the south side of Chicago. There are Baptist churches in Brooklyn where everybody is from South Carolina. You know, yeah, yeah. I have been to those churches. I have been to a church in Harlem where everybody was from the same three exactly. towns in North exactly. Carolina. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The people that I was looking to tell the stories of, uh, they were not going to be heard from otherwise in the ways that this book might permit them to do. So that's one of the things I, I spent a year and a half being tutored by people who had lived it and survived it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was also searching for the people who would be the three protagonists in the book. So that was what that was Mm -hmm. for. Yeah. So I chose them for lots of different reasons. You know, they they show the range of socioeconomic station. Yeah. Uh, They, you know, one was a sharecropper's wife, another was a railroad man. And of course, there was the surgeon. Uh, They were coming from the three different streams of the Great Migration. I love the idea that it shows Mm -hmm. Black agency. It's showing that they made these decisions uh, to do what they felt was best for their families at that time. And that Mm -hmm. there was no one leader. It's like it's a leaderless movement. And I love that. All that came through. Mm -hmm. But the main reason that I ended up with these three is because they all had really great senses of humor. They would have me just crying laughing. I mean, they were they were. So they were funny. funny. Yeah, Yeah, they were funny. (laughs) Okay, that makes for, you know, great storytelling. Because especially when you're writing about racism and the kinds of things that would drive Mm -hmm. a great migration, you know, it's not fun stuff. No, it's not. And, you know, I do think that helps. And another element I noticed in both books is this, you know, and you you called it out um, as narrative nonfiction. And so there is a real storytelling quality Mm -hmm. to this. It's not just straight history. And so how do you decide when and where to bring that? real storytelling into the work and when do you decide okay now i'm going to be more reportage because it's a fine line and it's a you know i think it's a tricky balance that we see working throughout both books Actually, to tell you the truth, I tried to have an outline. Like I tried to do it in an orderly fashion. Uh-huh. I tried to like, have, okay, I will <laughs> yep. do. I've tried to. It just wasn't working. You don't. There. You're not good at outlines no. either. I'm not good at outlining. I never, never have been. I write a book almost completely as a book. <laughs> I've never. I mean, I yeah. have an argument. You know, I'll know what I want to advance. I know what my major pieces are. But I've never been able to outline. So, what do well. you think is happening that allows you, or even requires you? to not have an outline and just to go with the flow of it? Like, what is it Mm. that is, what would you say? That is such a great great question. question. I think it might be something in what you said about how you chose your main protagonist. I know if I've listened closely enough, whether it's to documents or to people in interviews, if I've been listening, I know the parts that resonated as a story. Like if you have a we're black right. folk. We know how to tell a story. We come from story. Yeah. I know how a story should work. And I think I must have been, I'm usually, I'm picking that up as I go through all the data sources. And if I tried to take that out of my, out of my mind and structure it in an outline, I think I lose something, right? I think I lose the joke. I lose that little funny thing that she said. I, I lose how, like, what a character he was because he had on those funny shoes, right? I <laughs> That it's important, but it wouldn't show up in an outline. Yeah. And then once I try to write to the outline, I feel like I've made, I made too many trade-offs. Mm-hmm. Outlines actually make me leave out things I, that I would want to otherwise right. include. I teach outlining because uh-huh. 
in creative writing, you know, you have to give your students some of the basics that they're going to encounter elsewhere. But I also tell them, you know, if something else is going to work for you, I encourage you to do that. Mm -hmm. I also, I rarely outline. It's just Just not, it's Mm -hmm. not my ministry. I can't, I can't do it. I think that what, what we're speaking about is sort of the improvisational inheritance of storytelling, of black storytelling. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that the outline started to feel, starts to feel artificial. It starts to feel as if I am trying Mm -hmm. to direct something that has its own life force and I need to go with that life force. And I love how none of us use this. And I think you're exactly (laughs) right, Isabel. I think this is the inheritance of the African-American rhetorical tradition. This is black. Black rhetoric Absolutely. from across the diaspora. We tell stories and this is what this we is do. This is what we do. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is just me being nosy because I know that <laughs> writers are always working on things. <laughs> oh, yeah. and, and projects like the ones you do take years. So yeah. what are you working mm-hmm. on next? What has captured your intellectual curiosity? I have several other things that I have on my plate that I want to do. But now this book is been on its own kind of journey. And and of course, in the era of COVID, it's so hard to even yeah. really think about. It's hard to actually have to concentrate, to tell you the truth. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. the same for mm-hmm. you guys, but it's hard yep. to concentrate yep. when so much is in the balance on so many levels. So anyway, that's that's all I can say. Now, we've talked about that quite a bit on the show over the last few months. And we've asked this actually of all creative people. We talked to painters recently and photographers and poets. Like, how are you creating right now under these conditions? And yeah, and people are kind of all over the place. It's really hard to get into a creative flow when there's so much sort of like anxiety and underpinning like change. And, and the isolation has been particularly hard, which you would think would be the exact opposite. Because usually writers are like, I wish I could just get everybody to leave me alone so I can write. But as it turns out, I needed everybody else to keep living. I just needed them to leave me alone. You are so right. I mean, don't you feel like, don't you all feel like this kind of like, there's this voice in your head saying you should be doing this and you should be doing that because you have all this time. Yes. You have the time now in theory to do exactly what in theory. Yeah. But I can't go eavesdrop on people. I can't (laughs) go people watch. I can't go sit in the park. That's what I apparently did. And I didn't even realize it until the options weren't there. You yes. know, um, but yeah, now I have the time, but there's no life. There's no life for me to go. We're see. cut off from the sources of inspiration for the work that we do. That's it. You know, I'll never I tell you what, I'll never take it for granted. No. again. I know that's right. Mm-hmm. You guys brought up the news about the big interview. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to just say, I don't know if this is a case for you guys, but it actually annoys me that I know the most random factoids about the royal family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I just <laughs> <laughs> like, how did it permeate? I'm supposed to be resistant. Yeah, I'm writing to, a little essay. About, I saw a lot I'm of writing folks a little like essay that. about them. And as I was writing it, I was like, why do I know this? Uh-huh. Part of it is that my mom is a royal watcher, and so she reports everything to me. But you know, I think another. <laughs> it just permeates everything that we do. Mm-hmm. It's not good. I happen to know. I, I don't even know how I knew it. Mm-hmm. But I actually know like the fact that it was Princess Michael who wore the uh, brooch with the lawn jockey on it oh, when she went I to weirdly, see Megan. I weirdly know the that too. Time. Yeah. Like, how I don't do even I pay attention that? to these people and even I knew that I one about the lawn jockey pin. Yeah. yeah. I don't even know how. And I know her name. It's Princess Michael. Like how mm-hmm. 
do we know those things? Where is this coming from? And that's why, you know, this awareness of what the messages in our society, just how they work their way into our subconscious, to me, connects us to what I was saying about, you know, what I believe about Cass is that Mm -hmm. we pick up on the messaging about who is valued in a society without even trying or even wanting to. I don't want to yes, know. Yes, I'm actually that this resistant. I'm resisting. I am very resistant to royal news. <laughs> and know. even I know that uh the girl is pregnant, for example. I know the children, the baby's name. Yes. I feel like they sent me a card. Maybe they didn't <laughs> send it to me, but I saw their Christmas picture and <laughs> I have that in my mind. Um <laughs> It is an unfortunate reminder. Yes, I feel like it's those parts of me that are American that I'm really pissed about. <laughs> I normally only feel it when I travel abroad. You know, when I get on, I'm like, oh, I am. I'm such an American, right? Because I don't feel American in America. <laughs> leave America. But when I go sudden, out there. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. They got me. Yeah. That's how I feel about this. Yeah. Like, yeah, they got me. Yeah, that's how I feel. They got me. Yeah. We, I think we're just open to, we don't realize how uh, programmed we are to pick yep. up on the values that are imparted mm-hmm. by the larger society, whether we want to or not. Especially when yeah. they are attached to the idea of being learned, mm-hmm. like being just an informed, generally informed person comes with a certain expectation of some things you're supposed to know. And I kind of resent that because I don't want that knowledge. I want the other good knowledge. I didn't want this. But it's always a reminder that we don't get to choose, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're restricted. Well, Isabel, we are thrilled to have you on the show. I love, one of our favorite (laughs) things to do is to talk about craft with other Black women. So that was absolutely thrilling. We also have a question that we ask of everyone who visits (laughs) us here on the show, especially the sisters. And so that question is, how can we, the show, Roxanne and I, our listeners, how can we help you do you. Oh, thank you for that. I would say that I want people, uh, you know, people say, well, just to buy the book. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying I want people to, you know, absorb the message with an open heart and a willing mind uh, to open themselves up to what it seeks to do and to really look beneath what we think we can see. I wrote this because I wanted to connect with like-minded souls, people who are searching for answers. And that's why I wrote in, and I I really wish and hope and appreciate whatever you are doing to encourage others to to embrace it, because that's what it's meant for, really is. I think that's wonderful. Thank you for that. It's certainly one of the more selfless I have to say, I have to say, very generous Yeah, generous. Oh, it is. Us. It is very On generous. On the same page. I know. <laughs> Thank you very much for being on the show, Isabel. It was a pleasure. We really appreciate it, Isabel. Thank you. It was so much fun. Thank Great. you. Yay. And speaking of being on the same page, we apparently are also on the same page about uh, writing process. Uh, certainly, at least up to the point of I don't outline. I agree. Um, I, too, am not a big outliner. Often the outline is just really there to, like, manage. I find other people's anxieties about the writing process. And when it's time for me to write, I just don't want to think about what other people need. But that's why I'm bad at group projects. (laughs) Group projects are a challenge, and I'm glad that I'm finally at the stage of my life where 
in most realms, I do not need to engage in group project. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm good. I'm good. I get why we do them. I get that they are important for teaching people how to be good citizens and all that stuff. But I'm the first person to say I suck at group projects. Mm-hmm. I love the part of being an adult where I get to choose when I am in conversation with people. <laughs> this mm-hmm. is the fun part of being a grown up. Uh, losing your abdominal muscles. That's not fun. But having some control over who you talk to. That's that's enjoyable. It's glorious. It's glorious. (laughs) And increasingly, I find, you know, in general, I say yes to everything. I say yes to everyone. But I have been dealing with quite a lot of burnout. Mm -hmm. And I am finding that I need to be more careful about who I allow to take some of my psychic energy Mm -hmm. and who I'm spending my time with and why. And it's great. Like, no, that can that phone call, that meeting, that can be an email. We both know it can be an email. And so you go ahead and email me whatever you need me to know. <laughs> you know who I'm going to give credit to mm-hmm. for that? Hmm. That's Debbie. You? No, of course it's Debbie. Yeah, it's Debbie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's really helped me with establishing boundaries. Mm-hmm. And she, she <laughs> got me going to therapy twice a week. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a lot, but Rah, I am. In, Rah, I'm, Debbie. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, she she runs a tight ship. <laughs> that is I hilarious, find, isn't it? Though it isn't it. It's like, wait, you want me to do what? And she's like, it's what's best. And you took your ass to therapy though, now didn't you? I did. I did. Okay, I've been in therapy then. for a while now, but I. She was like, when you go twice a week, you get to be more active because, like, the first session is going to be like, here's what happened. It's that just I'm catching about. up. Uh huh. Correct. And the second session is like, okay, now let's get into your mother. <laughs> you know what is so funny? That's absolutely how we approach recording the show. Mm-hmm. We do our catch up recording one day and then we do like the substance the other day. It is so mm-hmm. funny that we would not translate that to other realms. Absolutely. Of creative energy and development. That's absolutely mm-hmm. how it should go. That makes so much sense. It really does. And it's really helping me professionally in addition to helping me personally mm-hmm. because I have no boundaries. And I know now, I mean, I've known why I have no boundaries, but to like really get into it and sort of deal with it and face it and then realize, oh, I can tell people no and I can disappoint people and I will survive their disappointment, Mm. which is definitely a lesson I'm continuing to learn, but which is incredibly challenging. I think women and women of color have to learn that lesson forever. Like we are constantly relearning it. The entire world is set up to take away our choices. And so it is not our fault that we don't always learn boundaries because our mm-hmm. entire political economy is about taking away women's boundaries. Absolutely. Make us boundaries. Especially black you know? women. That's right. Uh, you know, like people want us to be everything to everyone. Mm-hmm. And I, increasingly, especially online, you know, when people are like, uh, you know, you forgot about this. Not, I did not forget about that. Mm-hmm. I don't have to do everything with everything. That's this right. is one tweet. Calm the fuck down. That's it. And uh, it's hard to uh, to just push back on these things, even though people think I'm the clapback queen. Mm-hmm. Please. I, I mean, I am. But... <laughs> 
but it's that never doesn't mean that doesn't mean you don't that you have total control though yet over right. your boundary making. Correct. Yeah. And I'm still a human being. People That's forget right. that we're actual people. Yeah. And I never do anything unprovoked. I don't go looking for you. I tell people that all the time. You show me one instance where I wouldn't picked on somebody, and I'll give you a hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. What yeah. happens is people come and they shit in my house, and, and I and spank then them. You're forced to clean it. That's up. right. So listen with their right. hair. Okay. Thank you. Uh, learning boundaries. That's a good takeaway for all of us this week. Absolutely. Here's the other thing. Here's the lesson I've learned from therapy and writing over the last mm-hmm. six months or so, Roxanne, is that you do your best writing and work when you have boundaries. Absolutely. Because I believe our creative energy, wherever it comes from, for me anyway, wherever my creative energy comes from, it is constantly testing me about how well I take care of myself. It says, listen, I'm not showing up. Mm -hmm. If you're out here letting people lie to you, if you're out Mm -hmm. here letting people violate your boundaries, I'm not going to show up. Mm -hmm. So my work is better. I have more creative energy. Because you're not letting the vampires suck you dry. That's it. That's right. Mm -hmm. So people ask all the time, how are you so productive? And they think I'm kidding when I say, how pissed are you? Mm -hmm. How good are you at setting boundaries and a fence around yourself? Mm -hmm. Because that's how I get my work done. I wish people understood the level of sort of constant rage that we live Mm -hmm. with. I'm like, and this is like, I'm not, this is me happy. I know. (laughs) Yeah. I enjoy it. I said recently, I've got a low level buzz in my ear all the time. I am Bruce Banner up in this bitch. That is correct. The Hulk Hulk will come out. Yeah, that's how you, that's how I get so much done, people. That's the secret. I'm always angry. All right, y'all. That's our show for this week. <laughs> we are always happy to hear from you guys with your comments and your suggestions and your questions. Tressie, oh, tell us. Oh, this one's for me. Okay, so mm-hmm. in a recent show, I mentioned how my Peloton hurt my butt. That is true until I made some adjustments. Um, a listener, Ann, hey, Ann, emailed us to say that she got a Peloton and her booty can't take the pain. And she wanted to know what I did to make it right. Okay, Ann, really quick rundown. So the first thing you got to do, this is going to sound so bad, especially if you're a Southern girl, what I'm about to say to you, it's getting ready to send a shiver down your spine. So just prepare yourself. You don't ride with underwear on. It's some kind of thing with science. I don't get all of the particulars. It's something about force and friction, but you are more comfortable if you wear the workout shorts, ideally some padded cycling shorts without underwear on. I know it's nasty, but you got to do it. And then the second thing is get your bike fitted for you properly. You can do that online. Um, there's a really great guy. I'm going to drop it in the show notes who does a virtual bike fitting for you. If the seat is in the right location, it'll be less painful. And the third most important thing is to know, and it just hurts in the beginning. You do eventually get over it, mostly because you get a little better at holding yourself up and you take some of that weight off of your big padonkadonk. I'm speaking about myself here, not you, Ann. I don't know nothing about your padonkadonk. All right, so I hope that helps, Anne. <laughs> Happy riding Ooh. to you. <laughs> you know, it's that it's that ass factor, which is the main and the, the clipping Girl. in that has kept me from the Peloton. But Girl. I did recently buy a, a Peloton esque rowing machine called the Ergata. Yes, I did. I, oh, it's I did beautiful. It. What a beautiful oh. little workout machine. I know it's been six weeks and it will be delivered soon. I hope. And they keep sending me updates that tell me not yet, and that's okay. <laughs> I know that the people in Rhode Island are working hard on my little rowing machine. I'm excited to try it out. It's like a video game. Yes, it is. That's I why I think enjoy. you're going to like it. They do a lot of competitions and your poker brain yep. is going to dig that. And the water... 
like you can hear the water because yeah. there's a water part. That's right. And so these things matter. Also, for an upcoming show about books, guys, we want to hear your book recommendations. What book published in the last year or two do you think we should be reading? So mm. email us a brief voicemail to H-E-A-R-2-Slay at gmail.com. From Luminary, Here to Slay is executive produced by us, Roxanne Gay and Tressie mcmillan Cottom. Our senior producer is Curtis Fox. Our producer is Catherine Finaloza. Production support from Lauren Garcia and Caitlin Adams. And our amazing interns are Allie McPherson and Ahsoki Samuel. Yeah, because you got us sounding like a hundred year old people talking about voicemail. People don't know what I, voicemail I was like, is, email us Curtis. a voicemail. I'm like, Curtis, that's not how voicemail works at all. She said it. I was like, we sound like the AARP commercial. <laughs> all right. Uh, email us a brief voice memo to H E A R to slay at gmail.com. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.